Amen. You may be seated. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 1 and extending to the end of the chapter. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of Sodom, the men of the city, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he became a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with him and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law... To be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand of the Lord, being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. 
The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and his firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you can go in and lie with him. We may preserve offspring from our father. So that they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Amin. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard some of the darkest words in the pages of Scripture, and our hearts can't help but be moved and heavied by what we have just read And we are struck in this moment, wondering from you in your presence as we sit with this word, what it is you would have us to know. And so I would ask that you would come now through the power of your Holy Spirit and speak to us a clear and powerful word that would both sober us through the warnings of this passage and save us by your grace through its mercies and comforts. Lord, only you can do that. So send now your spirit to accomplish that purpose according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But we can't help but cringe a little when we hear the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. For more than any other city in the entire Scriptures, these twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, could be called the sin cities of the Old Testament. They were dens of iniquity, where, as we see on the pages of Scripture, the worst forms of degradation and debauchery were welcomed and even more celebrated. It's not surprising then when we look at literature, both ancient and modern, that the names Sodom and Gomorrah are now used 
offhand with reference for a kind of byword for wickedness. We use them as a kind of way to express shorthand for something that has gone far awry. In fact, Robert Bork, who some of you will know, well-known American judge of the last couple of decades, a legal scholar, wrote a best-selling book in 1996 on the decline of morality in American culture. He entitled the book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah. Bork knew that if he just titled the book with the name of Gomorrah, everybody would get the point of the thesis of what he was trying to communicate. It didn't need any further explanation. Even at large, for those who don't really know the Bible, know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of what it is we read here in Genesis chapter 19. Now it's understandable that many readers over the years have focused in upon the judgment Uh, severe, swift as it is depicted here in Genesis chapter 19, and other readers have focused significantly on the particular sins that are expressed within the passage of Genesis 19. Again, not a surprise when you look over the course of the text is what jumps out at you as a reader. But I'd like to suggest today that the two cities are not really the main point of the passage. I'd like to suggest that judgment is not even the main point of the passage, and certainly not as sad and as disturbing the portrayal of the sinful behavior in Sodom is, that the sins are not really the point of the text either. But in fact, what we see is the wonder of God's rescue. The wonder of God's rescue. That in the midst of wrath, He remembers mercy. That's a direct quote from the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, as he prays to the Lord for the intercession of the people of Israel. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. And we see in this passage that God has faithfully remembered mercy in the midst of what next may be the flood and a few other accounts in the scriptures is the worst expression of judgment found in the pages of Holy Writ. Now, when we begin to understand that mercy and rescue are the main themes of Genesis chapter 19 and not the things that tend to grab our attention when we're reading through, our mind turns away from the molten fire and sulfur and and the attention towards the angry, lustful mob in the context of this passage. And it begins to turn towards the pathetic Lot and his family. And I mean pathetic. Over the course of this passage, I find myself losing patience with him. I I did it again in the reading of Genesis 19. Especially when God in his kindness is rescuing him. And he says, oh, by the way, I think there's a nice holiday inn in Zohar that we could go to and have a good night's sleep. The hills look terrible. It'd be rough to sleep on the soil over there. And you think, well, maybe a thank you is more in order right now rather than asking for better accommodations. But it doesn't seem to register a lot. And yet in the context of this passage as we begin to read it, we see that God in His mercy depicts for us a man who, weak, his character um, compromised, but his status with the Lord, righteous. Now, I don't venture that on my own estimation. Don't get nervous. Second Peter 2 tells us that Lot was righteous. 
Just turn back to it in your, in your liturgy if you would like. We read it earlier. Um, Joe read it for us. It was our scripture reading today. It actually refers to Lot being righteous three different times in the midst of the text. That's Peter's commentary upon the life of Lot. Now, to be quite honest, as we read through the book of Genesis and we look at Lot, righteous is not the first thing that comes to our mind, which tells us something really significant about the nature of this passage. To be righteous is clearly not to be perfect. And that the focus of this passage is not on Lot's goodness in order to be saved, but on God's grace that saves those who aren't good. It's God's grace, it's His mercy that rescues the people who actually deserve to go down with the ship. You and me. It's God's kindness that He set His love upon us, not because of anything we've done, but because of His mere good pleasure. That's the language of Ephesians chapter 1. That He rescues us out of our sin and our sickness. And He brings us into the hills of His safe haven and refuge. More on that later. I want to just simply know what I think is the spiritual issue that Lot really deals with in this passage. And I'm, I'm stealing this from one of the best Old Testament scholars out there. His name is Derek Kidner. He wrote a wonderful commentary on Genesis, wonderful commentary on the Psalms. If you had never read Derek Kidner or you, you're, you're interested in doing Old Testament studies, I can almost rec- recommend him without any kind of caveat. Wonderful commentator. I try to read him every week in preparation for this series in, in Genesis. He has, a, he has a one sentence on Lot that I just I thought summarized what it is we're seeing in the context of Genesis 19. Here's what he says about Lot. He says, Lot was a righteous man, based on 2 Peter 2, without a pilgrim spirit. Lot was a righteous man without a pilgrim spirit. Now, why does he say it that way? He says it that way because he can see on the pages of Genesis chapter 19 and previous in the evidences that we get from the Word of God regarding the character of Lot that he is a man who is too at home in the world. He is a man who is too at home in the world and has become a man in his character who has compromised his commitment to the kingdom that is to come the promises that come through Abraham, and he has begun to try to establish the kingdom that is now through the affections and the attractions, specifically the pleasures and the conveniences that would have been available to him in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is a righteous man, but who doesn't have a pilgrim spirit. Now, I actually believe that's very true of a lot of us North American types. God has been faithful To rescue us despite ourselves. And we have very close attachments to this world. And in the moments of what could be quick judgment as the scripture speaks. We may be prone to linger. Now with that in mind I think it's important for us to look at Lot. And consider the nature of this passage. So that we would be better prepared for the day in which Christ will come. And the judgment that will be the end of time will make Sodom and Gomorrah look like a dress rehearsal. I want to look at this passage in three ways with you. I want to look at how sin destroys. How sin destroys. And then I want to look with you about how sin develops. 
how does it, how does it work in the midst of our lives? And how does it work kind of culturally in a city or in a community? And then I want you to see thirdly how God delivers. How God delivers. How sin destroys, how sin develops, how God delivers. Let's start with how sin destroys. We have these two angels. If you were with us last week, these strangers or visitors as they're described at the opening of Genesis 19. They've just come from Abraham and from his tents. Those angels had just spoken a word of prophecy to Abraham and to Sarah and said, you will have a son within the year. And we'll see by Genesis 21, lo and behold, Isaac shows up on the scene. But while they were there, giving the prophecy regarding Isaac, they also let Abraham in on the fact that they were going to go down to Sodom and investigate to see whether divine judgment was warranted. For what was taking place, the outcry, we're told, was great in Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're going to go down to investigate and to bring judgment upon that city. We see that they have done that in the course of this passage. And when they get to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's Lot who finds them. He finds them right there as he's sitting in the city gate. Now that's noteworthy. The city gate was the place of judicial center, civic activities. Lot is sitting there. It's the language of an official. He's a man who's moved into the upper ranks of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sees uh, these visitors. We don't know how he recognizes them. We don't know why he knows that, that they're here on special business. But, but you can see that he's concerned about them. He invites them into his home. And as he invites them into his home, we see that they pause and say, No, 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 it's okay. We'll go down to the town square. And he goes, No, 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 I mean it. Come to my home, and we begin to figure out why it's very important that they come to his home. Because as they finish dinner, before they retire for the evening, Lot's house is surrounded by, we're, we're referred to as all the men of Sodom, young and old of like. These probably nice looking angels, um, objects of attraction, have showed up in Sodom and they've been seen. And word on the street has led the people of Sodom, specifically in the context of the passage, the men of Sodom, to surround the house and to demand that Lot turn them over to them in order that they might abuse them. We had company in our house last week. They stayed with us. I've tried to imagine the nightmare of what it would be like to have, a, have your house surrounded and to demand that your visitors... Be, be given over for the kind of abuse envisioned here in the midst of the passage. Now, what does this teach us? In the shocking, horrific picture of sin, not just in its, in its miniature, in its beginnings, but sin in its kind of full-blown perversions of an even forcible, horrific kind envisioned here in this passage. How does this work? Well, I want to get underneath that for just a minute to talk a little bit about the nature of sin. And I want you to see that in the nature of sin, it's always leading to this kind of behavior. You see, at the heart of sin, point one of how sin destroys, sin always, in its impulse, wants to consume other people. Sin, in its impulse always wants to consume other people when it's sin in relationship with others. Uh, Lot, notice, in his righteousness, wants to care for the visitors, but the men of Sodom have come, and what have they come for? They've come to consume 
the visitors. And, and I like to suggest that the reason for that is there's a huge difference between love and lust. Love on the pages of Scripture and, and even in the best writings throughout church history expresses a kind of sacrificial desire that longs for the good of the other to be achieved in relationship with them. You're looking to how it is you can bless them, how you can make them whole, how you can encourage them. You see, that's the spirit of Lot in the passage. He opens up his house in order to provide food for them and rest for them that they might be safe from what he knows to be the reality there in Sodom. It's an expression of righteous love that we see from Lot here. But the opposite is what we see here in the lust that is expressed from the men of Sodom. Wickedness looks at people as a commodity. Wickedness considers people as something to be used rather than to be something to be, to be loved. Now, before you go on and think, well, I would never get to that, that point. How many employers in here have looked at your employees as human resources how many times have you used the people around you to kind of get where it is that you want to be or or notice that someone of privilege has come into your sphere of influence and the thought in the back of your mind is how can I spend more time with them in order to get some fringe benefit or blessing from them same impulse same impulse You see, the nature of sin in relationship with each other is it looks at someone of how you can use them, maybe even drain them of what they are in order to gain a personal benefit that you have in view for yourself. At its core is selfish, destructive consumption. So as we contemplate this nature of the way sin destroys, hopefully there's even some acknowledgments in your own life that you can say, I have often treated others in a manner that's maybe not to quite the nature of what we see here in Genesis 19, but boy, the seed of that fruit is well alive in my life. I want you to see secondly that not only does sin consume people, but secondly, sin complicates situations. This is a very complicated situation. In fact, Lot is caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place here. He's got visitors he needs to protect. He's got an angry mob outside who is poised for abuse. And in the context of this, Lot has set himself right in the middle of it. He's shut the door behind and he stood like a human barrier to say, you're not getting in here. And, and there's something in this that, that we're encouraged about because there's, there's, there's finally, like we've been looking for it, there's finally some, some morality and some righteousness that appears to be showing up uh, for Lot on, on the pages. I mean, he says here, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Some of us want to kind of cheer finally for, for, for Lot in this. We're, we're rooting for him. He's, he's at least took a stand. On what is evil in the city. But then I want you to notice that in the complication of that situation, he's not sure how to get out of it. And sin, because of its perverseness with regards to consuming people, its complicated situations, often leads us into circumstances where we compromise because of clouded judgment. He does the unthinkable. Just at the point where you're beginning to say, I might like this guy a lot. I could follow this guy. Look at what he says there in in, in verse 8 of the text. Behold, I have two daughters that have never known a man. 
Let me bring them out to you so that you may do with them what you please, only to do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What in the world is going on here? The man has lost his mind. That's what goes through my mind when I read this text. I think, you are doing so well. What happened? It's what happens oftentimes to us to just normalize it for just a second. If you can't put yourself in these kinds of shoes, and I must admit I had a hard time uh, this week. Normally I read the passage of Scripture and I just kind of go, yep, there's me. I just need to repent and trust in Christ in this passage. I got to this one and I thought, I have two daughters. And I thought, I don't know what frame of mind I'd need to be in to suggest this as a way forward. I just I couldn't get there. But as I begin to ponder it, I begin to realize how many times have I been between a rock and a hard place. And I have said to myself, rather than choosing righteousness, because righteousness might cost me my life. Righteousness might not even be clear to me because my judgment's somewhat clouded on the issue. Instead, I decide I'm going to just choose the, the lesser of two evils. Could it be in this context that that's actually the reasoning that might be channeling through Lot's own mind that this, this perversion of, of homosexual behavior is, is worse than, say, the perversion of the, the heterosexual perversions in this? Could it be that Lot is... The, we're not given... We're actually not given Lot's internal operating system here, but he, he runs to this as a, as a way of protecting his guests while simultaneously handing over the sanctity of his daughters. We're disgusted by it, aren't we? As you read through this text, you're literally kind of sick to your stomach at this particular point. For it seems as if Lot has gotten to a place with a complicated situation. He's been in a culture for long that has consumed people. His judgment seems now clouded on the spot of pressure. And he opts for an answer that is no answer whatsoever. And so that really does raise the question, if sin destroys in this way, it tends in these directions, how does one get there? How does that develop in the heart? Whether it's Lot or it's the men of Sodom, how do we get to those places? What's really going on in the internal operations of our, of our hearts? And that leads us to point two, how sin develops. Listen, point one under this point two, a sub-point is I want you to see that this begins, this kind of behavior begins when we begin to become familiar with sin. Familiar with sin. This slide into the kind of destruction and disgust that we see in, in this passage happens because we've inched our way into familiarity with sin over time. You remember all this began, Lot looking out of, uh, across the land with, with Abram. And Abram, in his generosity, says, Lot, listen, choose either parcel. You can go this way or go this way. But whatever way you go, I'll go the other. And he looks down and he saw that the land was like the garden of God. Down near Sodom and Gomorrah. And he chose the best for himself. Something that we see Lot struggling with throughout this text. And we're told by the end of that passage, earlier in the book of Genesis, that Lot cast his tents as far as Sodom. Later in the next chapter, we're told that Lot is in Sodom. Now at the beginning of this passage, he's in the gate of Sodom. He's become an authority, a man of the city 
in Sodom. He has over and over become more towards the center, more familiar, more up close and personal with the nature of the perversions that were happening in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there was not a hedge of protection around his heart. Now, maybe, maybe you hear me and you go, well, Nate, I don't know how not to be familiar with sin when you're living in a sinful world. Granted, there's a difference between sin being common and sin being familiar. There's a difference. Sin is pervasive. You can't get away from it. Hint, hint, it's in you. Like you'd have to get away from you somehow to get away from sin. I mean, it's a reality that all of us are dealing with. So I acknowledge the fact that we're in a quite a, a significant predicament if we're going to try to get away from sin altogether. That's not the suggestion here. The suggestion here is that over time, through the commonness of sin, there becomes a familiarity with sin and there becomes a comfortableness with the sin. You see, this is how it often creeps into our lives. That we, over the course of our lives, having been inundated over and over with certain now acceptable sins, we become desensitized as a people. No more do we feel the horror that we ought to feel over the nature of the sinfulness. Now, I'm not just talking about the sins in the world. I want to ask you personally about your own heart. Are there sins that you battle in your own daily life that just don't bother you like they used to? They're just not a big deal anymore. They used to be. You could remember 10 years ago when it grieved you. When you gossiped or when you slandered towards another. And now, and now you hardly think anything of it. Has there been a sin slide that's been taking over the course of your life and you realize that your character is being compromised? That you have, in a sense, lost the sinfulness of sin. That's one of the ways that we know that we've familiarized ourselves with sin. That it's become almost something that's, that's comfortable to us. And so what happens is, once sin has become familiar to us, there's, we, we kind of look for or we don't shy away from the opportunities to engage in that sin. That, that's actually what we see happening with, with Lot continuing to move towards the inner recesses of, of Sodom and finding himself at home there. He begins to, to saddle up next to the perversions which are all around him. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself kind of caught up into them. Even suggesting a perversion as a, as a way forward. Do you see, we move from familiarity to sin to finding ourselves open to the opportunity of that sin. Because we've been desensitized from it. A passage of Scripture I have to go back to regularly just to challenge my own heart is Galatians 5.13 where Paul tells us to not give an opportunity for the flesh. Listen, all of us have certain sinful proclivities, inclinations. And, and maybe you recognize as I do, there are certain situations that I'll find myself in where I'm more vulnerable. Maybe it's when you're out of town. Maybe it's when you're in the privacy of your own home. Maybe it's with a certain group that when you're with them, you're just prone to a little more looseness of lifestyle. And you see what these are. These are opportunities for the flesh. 
This is where we begin to put ourselves in situations where we compromise the faith. And there are, there are guards that we need to be able to put up. Barriers, parameters around certain contexts where we need to say, it's not healthy for me to go here. It's not sin for me to go here. But it's not right and healthy for me to go here. Let, let me again paint it from this passage. Was it a sin for Lot to pitch his tents outside of Sodom? You will look with futility in the Bible at a command that says, don't pitch your tents next to Sodom. Was it wrong for Lot to move into Sodom? You'll, you'll look with futility in the scriptures to try to find a passage that says that. But it's as if, as he got closer and closer to Sodom, he made more and more opportunities for the flesh. He was tugged more and more upon the things of the world. And slowly but surely, what was free became an enslaving force that actually led him into sin. I was having a conversation with a youth. This was several years ago. And they were very honestly, and I'm really grateful for the conversation because this is a, a good conversation. We need to have these kinds of conversations. They were in a romantic relationship with someone. And they were querying me about how far is too far. These are dialogues that we sometimes have. And I explored some things with them and reflected with them. Mostly listened for a while to figure out what was going on. But in the context of that conversation... They were wanting clarity at the end of it, nearing the end of it, saying, so it, this would be okay, but that wouldn't be okay. And this would be, it's like, in a way of speaking. Um, but let me give you an analogy. It's never a sin to stand near to the edge of a cliff. But if you walk along an edge of a cliff for a long period of time, the likelihood of a fall becomes much greater. And it may be that you're asking the wrong question. Not how far can I go? How close can I get to the edge of the cliff? But what protections do I need to remain faithful? Faithful to the call of God upon my life. See how fundamentally different that is? There's a lot of things in the course of our life that we have freedom to do. But not all things that we're free to do are profitable. You see, what happens is familiarity with sin, given an opportunity to sin, often gives birth to the yielding of sin. And that, I think, is, is really how we see it in the context of, of Lot. He loved the city. He loved the conveniences of the city. He loved the life of the city. And I think that's why as he's, as, he's being, as he's fleeing from the city, as the angels are taking him out, he's looking at those hills and he's saying, man, I'm going to miss my Serta back in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's not going to be any more 16-ounce ribeyes to enjoy at the local sacrificial temple. Um, you think we could go down to Zoar? You see, the Lord is in the midst of rescuing him. Out of the, but the tug of his heart is still, still towards the conveniences of the worldliness that he's become quite accustomed to. I mean, we see this in spades, don't we, with his, with his wife? His wife, who didn't just love the city, needed the city. That idolatrized the city. 
As they fled, she looks back and we're told in the context of the passage that she is turned into a pillar of salt. Now, I mean, there's other ways to understand what's going on here, but I think maybe the most convincing of what this pillar of salt means, if you've got sulfur falling down from the sky, you've got molten fire coming down, she's looking back, which means she's lingering, she's probably come to a, to a halt. She begins to take in the gases of the air succumbs in in death, looking and opining for the life that she's losing in Sodom and Gomorrah, is ultimately lays dead there on the precincts of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as her body is exposed over the torment of that judgment, calcifies and becomes, as it were, a kind of living pillar to remember what happens to those who hold on to the world rather than who strive for the world that is to come. You see, Jesus actually used it in that very way. If you're thinking, man, this is also Old Testament, right? This is also dark and dour Old Testament kind of passage. Well, Jesus in Luke 17, it's talking about the judgment that is to come when he returns and receives ultimately his bride, that new heavens and that new earth is inaugurated. And we're there with him perfectly. Before that moment of glory, there's going to be a judgment. And he speaks of judgment, by the way, more than anyone else in the whole of Scripture. So if you're thinking it's an Old Testament reality, you're wrong. Jesus has constantly warning the people in his own day about the coming judgment. And he does so in Genesis, or excuse me, in Luke 17. He says, On that day, speaking of the day that he will return, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. It's a sobering passage. It's the same context. It actually sheds light on why it is that Lot's wife turns back. We don't actually, we don't actually know. But he tells us here, goods, the, the life she had, the things that she possessed. She looked back on them. And to lose Sodom was to lose her life. Now the question that you have to ask yourself, if you were to lose your home, if you were to lose your status here in the United States of America, if you were to lose all your wealth, if you were to lose everything in worldly good that matters to you, would it be true of you that you have lost your life? You need to sit in that question. That's the question of this text. Don't give me the Sunday school answer, I know it. Lot knew it too, and probably Lot's wife knew it. The question of this text is, is ultimately the question that the old Puritans raised. Salvation is not so much a matter of choosing heaven over hell. That's an easy decision. Salvation is a matter of choosing heaven over earth. Will God and the things of the world to come have more importance and value to you than the things of this life? That's the real question. And that's the question we're facing in this text. 
How sin destroys, how sin develops, finally, how God delivers. I want you to see this. This is beautiful, friends, in case you were wondering if there was any hopeful news in the midst of this sermon. There is tremendous news that's in the midst of this sermon, and it doesn't on the surface appear like it from the very beginning. But I want you to see in verses 12 to 14 how the angelic guest says to Lot, listen, if you have anybody in town, you've got to tell them it's time to get out. And so he goes to his sons-in-law. Very interesting. Uh, More than likely, his own daughters are engaged to be married to men from Sodom. Just noting that in passing. He goes to his sons-in-law, and clearly they are well-skilled in the knowledge of God because as soon as they hear of judgment falling on Sodom, what do they think he's doing? They think he's joking. They think he's jesting. To them, it's so exaggerated. There's so much hyperbole. I'm not taking this seriously. Sulfur is going to rain down from heaven. What in the world are you talking about? Lot, you need to go get a drink. You need to go get a drink. Something's bothering you. They saw it as jesting. They saw it as a joke. It was no joke, my friends. Listen, this haunts me when I think of the people today who mock the idea of divine judgment in the future. This is a haunting passage from that standpoint. But he gets up the next morning. He goes to get his morning coffee. Maybe to get a few things together. He's taking it easy. The angels show up. Up, you've got to go. It's time. It's urgent. This is very important. And we're told that Lot, he's still in his slippers, lingers. And this is a righteous man. 2 Peter 2. This is a man whom the Lord has set his love, holds him in the palm of his hand. He lingers. And do you know what the angels do? This is one of the most encouraging things in the whole of the text, my friends. I want you to see it. They take him by the scruff of the neck and they carry him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you see what's remarkable about this text? is that God saves Lot and his family against their will. Against what they would have chosen. That's the kindness of the Lord. Is that he does not simply let the inclinations of our heart be the barometer for how it is he acts or releases us to go, but he works against our will. Even in the midst where we linger, he picks us up by the scruff of the neck and he carries us to our own redemption. It's the most beautiful picture of God's intercession and his intervention in the life of a man who would have been destroyed if it not had been for God. Listen, none of us was smart enough or wise enough to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. None of us just woke up one day and thought, I think, man, I just think I should come to Christ. I, I, you know, I just think it would probably be a good idea to do that. If, that. if that happened in the course of your life, I just want you to know what's happening. What's happening is the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, awakening you to the reality of your sin and to the reality of Christ's salvation. And he is wooing you through the power of his grace, changing you from the inside out in order to choose what you would never choose if it was your own will. And what's remarkable about that is that God doesn't do for us what we would often do in our own self. But he works against us for our good because he loves us. Because he loves us. The salvation he brings 
is a salvation that's against our will. But here's the second and last thing. The salvation he brings is a salvation that saves us from the judgment of God. Saves us from the judgment of God. Listen, there are multiple salvations in this text. Just think about them. You know, Lot put himself in front of the angry mob. <laughs> and he's going to offer up his daughters. Foolishness. God saves him from his foolishness. God saves him from his recklessness. Pulls him inside. Blinds all of the, the lustful, angry mob. So they wear themselves out groping for the door. There's one intervention. There's one salvation. He lingers. Brings him out. <laughs> there's another intervention they have. It's all over this text. But you know there's an intervention that's hinted at in this text that leads to the intervention that he is bringing into your life today. And you wouldn't know it. And it's the kind of sections in texts like this that we don't pay attention to. It's there in verse 37. It arises out of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his older daughter. Now, I'm going to assume that you probably didn't expect to hear that your salvation arised from an incestuous relationship in the Old Testament. Is that a fair assumption? Did you expect to hear that this morning? It does. Because our God is an awesome God. In verse 37 of this text, we're told that the oldest daughter has a son, and that son's name is Moab. And the Moabites are the group of people that arise out of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Now, some of you, because you're biblical scholars, can remember this. There's a very celebrated Moabite in the Old Testament. She actually has her own book. It's called the Book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was from the lineage that arose out of the oldest daughter in the incestuous relationship with her father Lot. And as you'll recall, she was rescued and redeemed by a man by the name of Boaz. He was, as the text calls him, a kinsman redeemer. He rescues her from her destitution. At the end of Ruth chapter 4, verse 22, we read that Boaz has a child with Ruth, his wife. And the child that is born of Ruth the Moabite is Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David, the greatest king in Israel's history. The one who is the archetype for the king that is to come, who will redeem all of his people from their sins. And it would be enough to just stop right there. But when you open up the first pages of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, and you begin to look at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what you see there? You see Ruth. The Moabite, the one who comes from the lineage of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter, whose son was Obed, whose grandson was Jesse, whose great-grandson was David, and whose greatest son is Jesus Christ. The very one who has come to intervene in the midst of the lives of his people To save us from the midst of our sin and our judgment. Do you see our God is an awesome God? Our God is an awesome God. In the context of this passage, He is taking what we would look at as the worst possible perversion and scenario. 
And he is turning it into a glorious trophy of his grace. So much so that this Lord Jesus Christ actually becomes the one who receives on the cross for us the sulfur and the molten fire that each and every one of us deserves. That this is the one who receives the judgment of God on our behalf so that we can run to the hills and be rescued and abide under the banner of His love and of His grace. And this is why Jesus, in conclusion, Ephesians 5, Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know this. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret. I think we've learned that in this passage. But everything will be exposed by the light when it becomes visible. Everything is illuminated by this light. Therefore, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. For Christ Jesus will shine upon you. Do you see what this passage is a call to seeing? It's a call to wake up. And to realize that your Redeemer has already come. He's already received the judgment for you. And He calls you now to walk out of the darkness and into the light. He calls you to put away from you the deeds of darkness and to take up the fruit of the Spirit. He calls you in that walk to experience His redemption. To know that He will turn the mess that is your life and mine into a beautiful trophy of His grace. Friends, if He can save the world through an incestuous relationship, I think He can do pretty well in your life too. So friends, take comfort. All is not lost. In fact, the grace is just beginning. Father in heaven, pour this grace into us. Pour this transformation into us. Awaken and live in our hearts by the light of this glorious word. And stun us mesmerizingly with the orchestration of your plan in history and redemption. So that we can see there's no reason to despair. But you have just given us all the reason to hope. And that reason comes by a name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.